right, so, so as I said, this was, this was supposed to be Luke's sermon. And, and, I, and I say that not as like an excuse for me, but to say that Luke had planned each one, you know, kind of methodically what he was going to say. You know, really this series was almost like one big sermon in three parts, right? And so Luke had planned that. Um, and so I'm probably going to throw like a spanner completely into his, into his plans. Not that I think we disagree on, on marriage or anything like that, but just that he, he had an outline and a, and a, and a plan. Um, so he'll, I'm sure, pick back up on that um, next week. Um, but to say, too, last week, he, he spoke on, on singleness, on, on leveraging the, that's this time in your life when you're single for the glory of God and for the gospel. And, and, and also, I think he, he talked importantly about the fact that, that singleness is not some sort of lesser status. It's not some sort of lesser status. And if God has called you to be single, if you desire to be single, that is no bad thing at all. Right? And I think that's important. I think it's important within the church because sometimes the church, if we're honest, if you've grown up in church or spent a lot of time in church, you know sometimes the church can almost like make single people feel lesser <laughs> because they're single. You know, well, they're not married with kids or anything like that. Right? And so I think Luke's message was really timely and really important last week in talking about the power of, 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 of singleness. And he referenced how Paul says that, in, you know, Paul says, look, this is me talking, but in my mind, if you can stay single, by all means, do it. Now, I think it's one of those, like, if we're not careful, it can almost start to sound like Paul saying everybody should remain single. Well, if that were the case, then the church would have ended pretty quickly, right? And Paul has a lot of other things to say about marriage, like Ephesians chapter 5, one of the most beautiful passages ever written about the, the, what marriage is intended to be. It was written by Paul, right? So I think you have to balance a few things. I think what Paul and, and I think what Luke was getting at last week is that if you don't desire to get married, like if that's not a desire you have, great. That's actually an enormous blessing to the kingdom of God because it means you can give all of your time, spare time, all of, all of like your, your focus on living for Jesus. Like you can drop, you know, if somebody says, hey, we need help over here, you can drop and do it, right? If you have the time, you don't have to ask your wife, you don't have to consult your, you know, what are this, what's the kid's schedule or anything like that, you can just go and do it. So you have a real freedom in your life to be able to leverage for the kingdom. It's, it's the way, it's the reason Paul was able to just pick up sticks and go all over the Mediterranean without any issues, right? He didn't have to pull his kids out of school, he didn't have to do any of that, right? You know, so I think that's what Paul is saying. If you're somebody who doesn't have any desire to get married, that's okay. Don't think like it's like some lesser thing. Embrace it and, and go with it. But Paul goes on to say, hey, it's not a problem to get married. If you're somebody who deeply desires to get married, if you're somebody who really just feels like I have to get married, that's okay. Get married to the glory of God, <laughs> right? Okay, so I think we need to see it within that context. And then next week, Luke is going to talk about, talk about dating. But this morning, we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about Marriage. And what I want to ask you to do is as we talk about this, just to keep, keep an open mind. Okay, because I think we've all, we've all watched, whether we wanted to or not, enough romantic comedies. We've all watched enough relationship um, reality TV, even again, whether we wanted to or not, right? We've, we've probably seen some varying degree of it. We've all read enough stories or, or you know, whatever it may be. And I don't want us to think for a second that we haven't been influenced by those things in the way that we view relationships. Okay, but here's what I want to say. This is, this is the, overarching, the overarching thing here. Is that I think that the Bible presents a much, much better view than any of those things do about what it means to be married and to live within the covenant uh, of, of marriage. And so we're going to be talking about, this, about that this morning. Because I think whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're dating, the reality is each one of us has within us the desire to love and to be loved, right? We want to love other people. Our culture looks at, like, we may have misguided views about love or things like that, but I think even at a core, we understand, like, love is a good thing, <laughs> right? Like, we want to be loved. And maybe we don't understand even what we actually want when we say that, but I think deep down we have a desire. We want to be loved, and we want to love other people. People, like, our culture spends billions of euro every year pursuing love, right? Valentine's Day is coming up. Just a, you know, warning shot there for, any, <laughs> for anybody who needs to hear it. Um, but we spend billions every year pursuing love. We spend billions every year showing 
our love, whether that's from huge weddings or giant proposals that cost God as much probably as my wedding did, you know, in the first place. You know, like we spend billions demonstrating our love to others. We, we also, I mean, obviously watching about love is an enormous industry. Whether that's, you know, classics like Casablanca or something, you know, or like, you know, wh whatever that may be, I'm not going to start naming romantic comedies. Like, that's, that's a waste of our time, all right? But, or reality shows or anything like that. I mean, there could probably be a whole sermon in talking about what's awful about Love Island. Um, but, like, right? So, just to say, we spend a lot of money when it comes to love. And one commentator, and, and this is why, so there's something like Alyssa pointed out to me. I, I, I often cite people's names, you know, I'll say like, oh, well, this person said this, or like one commentator said, like, it's not me trying to be like, look at how smart I am. It's actually trying to say, this is not my own idea. Okay, that's when I do that, just, just please bear with me on that. All I'm really doing is saying like, look, this was not my idea. It's not original to me. I'm not as smart as I, you know, I don't want you to, you know, I don't want to come off as, like, try and come off as smarter than I actually am. So I read other people who are way smarter than me, and they help me sometimes to digest these ideas. But that's, okay. So one commentator said this. We have moved from the idea that God is love to the idea that love is God. We worship a version of love. Now, now we're back to me. <laughs> we worship a version of love that makes apocalyptic promises, right? Makes these enormous, like, ideas, makes these enormous promises about what, if you, if you find love or have love, like, what it will do for you. The only issue is that if these apocalyptic promises that much of our romantic comedies or much of our literature or, or, or even just you know, ads on TV or whatever have to say is true, sorry, what I would say is I think that when we look at things like the divorce rates in our Western world, when we look at things... Um, like actually a rise in lifelong singleness <laughs> uh, and, and loneliness and depression and all of these things, I think it starts to tell us that maybe, that maybe this, these apocalyptic promises, that all of this stuff that we digest or ingest in our culture is really more like, like junk food. <laughs> it doesn't have the lasting sustainability to get us through the difficult times. It doesn't give us the energy that we actually need to live in a committed relationship that actually brings happiness. Instead, what it gives us is some sort of contractual relationship that says, so long as you don't get in my way, so long as you make me feel happy in the moment, so long as you give me pleasure, so long as you, you know, always push me to pursue my dreams and you don't, you don't question anything I ever say or do, then we can be together, right? And yet, I think what we see is over and over, our culture's version of love fails miserably to deliver on its promises. I think of the iconic line of a movie I've actually never seen, Jerry Maguire, uh, right? But it's like one of those lines that's like so famous that like within pop culture, you don't even have to have seen the movie to probably have heard somebody quote, it's, it's Tom Cruise, right? And he says, you, to Renee Zellweger, you complete me, right? And then she's like across the table, tears in her eyes, like, shut up. You had me at hello. Like, do we know this? Like, is that like something like even maybe I'm great. I'm like projecting my own pop culture like onto this. But like, I think it's one of those lines. It's like become so iconic and so famous in the Western world. And yet the problem is if we look to somebody and this is what we're all romantic comedies tend to do is put some sort of apocalyptic um, vision onto, on, projected onto somebody else that this person completes you. That when we do that, when we do that, it puts an unrealistic and impossible expectation on somebody that will ultimately crush them and leave you sad and disappointed. All right? So this is like, I'm putting forth my, <laughs> my thesis here. And that I think, and, and, and here's, the, uh, here's the thing, to finish my thesis here. I believe the Bible 
understands love and marriage in a much healthier and more fulfilling way. I do. And you know, so many people in our culture want to look at, at the Christian version of marriage and say it's outdated, it doesn't, you know, we've, we've moved past that now. And yet again, like I said, I think when we look at the scope of just things that you can observe yourself, you see that maybe actually the Christian version has something to offer to our world. To our world that's struggling, drowning, trying to find this kind of perfect, ideal love that we always hear is possible. That perhaps this Christian vision, this Christian, like Jesus' vision, the Bible's vision, God's vision of love and marriage offers something to our world that we desperately need. Okay? Now, here's a caveat on all of this. I think one thing that I know in my own life experientially, I have known people who aren't Christians who have very happy marriages. So I think it's possible. I think it's possible to have a happy marriage. I am, what I'm not saying is that if you don't follow the Christian vision of marriage, you're going to be a miserable, a miserable wretch. Okay? That's not true. That is not true. I know people who have a reasonably happy life. What I'm saying to those people, if you're in that camp or, or that's how you feel, is that it could be better. Even if your marriage is good, it could be better. I think the, like, if, we were to, if we were to align our marriage with the way of Jesus, it would be better. So even if you have a pretty decent marriage, a pretty good marriage, if you align it with the way of Jesus, it'll be even better. Okay? So not only do I know people who aren't Christians who seemingly, to me at least, have a very pretty happy marriage, I've also known Christians who are miserable in their marriage. I think that's the reality too. So just being a Christian doesn't guarantee you a successful, wonderful marriage. Again, I would say, that those people who are saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, you have a miserable marriage, that if they were to align that marriage into the way of Jesus and actually live the way that they say they believe, it would turn that marriage around. And it could be a very happy marriage that, as Ephesians 5 says, becomes an example to the world of Christ and the church. Okay? And so... That's where we're going to be, kind of. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 um, today. So kind of those two, those two places. Um, so if, if you need help with that, so Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's a small letter, kind of hard to find. Uh, but um, if you need to use the index at the front of the Bible, there is no shame in that. But Ephesians chapter, two, uh, or chapter 5, and then Genesis chapter 2 is like, you know, what, page 2 or 3 of your Bible, once you get past the index and all of that. All right, so it should be fairly easy. But those, those are kind of the places that we're going to be this morning. And so, with all of what I just said in mind, what I want to begin to lay out for you is something I think is really important when it comes to understanding marriage from a Christian perspective. Because I think we, again, the water that we swim in as people, and I, I, I don't need to repeat myself again, but just the water that we swim in as people, tends to look at marriage in a very transactional way. But that is not how the Bible sees it. And I think this is really, really, a really important distinction that many of us, maybe we know it in our heads, but we need to hear it again, is that the biblical vision is one of covenant. But first, let's talk a little bit about, about love. Okay, and then we're going to come back around. So we're going we're to talk about the next few minutes Love, creation, and covenant. All right? Love, creation, and covenant. Because I think those are, those are a few places where we find some, where, where we find uneven ground when it comes to the way people outside the church would view marriage and the way those of us who, who would call ourselves followers of Jesus would view, would view marriage. So love, what is it? All right, yeah, you could say that. What is love? Sorry. Like, I just, I had it in my head. Like, I, I had to do it. Like, it was one of those I couldn't. I almost put baby don't hurt me on the, under there. But then I was like, I, I won't do it. Um, <laughs> so love. Like, what is it? Now, again, I think in a very broad sense, I think love is such a plastic word in our culture. And what I mean by that is it's a word that can take a whole lot of meaning, right? Like, I can say I love pizza. I can say I love you know, watching, I loved watching rugby yesterday. I can say, I love my twins and my wife. And I can say, you know, like, I love you guys. Right? Is it all the same? Well, 
No, <laughs> obviously not. If I, you know, if I loved rugby the same way I loved my wife, we'd have a real issue, right? And, and you guys would look at me like I have a real, I think everybody in the world would agree I have a real issue, right? Okay, so, so what I'm saying is, it's a plastic word, it's malleable. It means a lot of things in our culture. It covers a lot of ground in our world. But not only that, I think when, when we, uh, we have to ask this question then, what do we mean when we talk about love between two married or engaged or, or dating people? Is it just physical attraction? Is love primarily a physical attraction? Like, dang, <laughs> you know, like, you know, when you see the bird, like, is, is that what it is? Is love primarily just shared interest? Like, oh, we have so many shared interests. Like, like is, that, is that what we mean when it comes to love? Like, man, this person, like, they just get me. Like, they understand, we, we share the same interests. Is it merely a feeling? Is it like, when they walk in the room, I just like, ooh, you know, I kind of turn into, you know, I just, I just melt or something like that, right? Because I think those tend to be kind of things that in the beginning, you know, as people, like, that's what we look for in somebody, right? Those are the primary things. Like, am I, do I find them, like, physically attractive? Do they melt my heart when they walk into the room? Do we share a lot of the same interests? Like, and I'm not saying any of those things are bad things. Is, is it bad? Like, look, when I, when I met Alyssa, I had all those same feelings. And is it bad? No, not at all. However, what happens when those fade? If that is what our love is based on, if that is purely like love in a sense, like if that is all we base it on, what happens when those feelings fade? The Greek word for that is actually eros. That's free, table quiz word there, um, eros, right? So like erotic love, like that's the word like in, in Greek they would have used for that. The Bible actually doesn't use that word. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Even though the Bible is written in Greek, they choose not to use that word for love. All right? It's, it's not saying that like, you can't have those feelings, but if love is based on those feelings, we're in real trouble. Or maybe for you, you think, like, I want somebody who, who doesn't want to change me. Right? They just love me the way I am. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you think, I want somebody who will support me no matter what I choose. Right? They'll always have my, like, they'll always support me in whatever decision I make in my life. What happens when there's conflict or difficulty? When actually that person thinks, this is a really bad decision and you shouldn't do it. How dare you? You're not supporting me. Like, your job is to just say, you do you. Great. Right? But I think sometimes that's kind of our, we, we take that into marriage. I don't want somebody to change me. They just need to love me for who I am. What if, what if that person actually saw who you could become and wants what's best for you? Just saying. Maybe this is a distorted feeling. Or what if I just see marriage or love primarily as about my self-fulfillment? And I think this is a real big problem. <laughs> and here's what I mean. I'm not saying... That I don't, like, in a sense, marriage doesn't give me a feeling of fulfillment at times. Sure it does. Like, you know, as I, I walk through life with, with Alyssa, do I ever feel, like, fulfilled? Yeah, of course. But it should not be the primary place where I find fulfillment. And self-fulfillment. Because we're going to get into this, but I think actually marriage is not really as much about me as it is about the other person. And this is important. So when marriage, or when, like, relationships become about purely self-fulfillment. And I don't want to take too much from Luke because I have a feeling he's probably going to talk about this. We have, we have a real problem because I begin to see somebody else as an object to my gratification or my self-worth or my, you know, me becoming who I am. This person is merely an object that helps me to feel better about myself. And I think we see this all over in, in relationships, right? People get into relationships because it gives them a sense of, of worth or purpose. And really what ends up happening is we turn other human beings into objects. And this can happen then when people get married. This is all about my self-fulfillment. You're here to make, you know, make me a better me and uh, you know, to prop me up and make me feel good. Right? And it's all about me, 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 me. Well, what happens when you're in a relationship with somebody and it's like everything is all about them? Do you really want to be in that relationship? No, it's miserable. Right? And so I think sometimes we carry this idea that marriage is really about self-fulfillment and when we bring that in, our relationships are about self-fulfillment. When we bring that into a, into a marriage, it's disaster. Because there's going to be conflict and there's going to be 
difficulty. So, I think the Bible, the way the Bible primarily talks about love, is as an attitude and an action. There's a really helpful book. I'm just going to throw this out there. If, if you want to read it, it's more of a, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a bit more on the academic side, but it is helpful. It's called What the Bible Says About Love. <laughs> and it's written by a guy, Patrick Mitchell. He's a professor at the Irish Bible Institute. He was actually my dissertation supervisor. So I can like recommend, he's a great guy. I can say that about him. But his book on love is actually, I think, really helpful because what he does is he actually walks through quite a few passages in the Bible that talk about love and he just kind of, so, so some of the next few ideas are actually kind of come from him. Um, but he, he talks about, he says, love is both an attitude and an action. So if you think about this, this is the way um, the Bible talks about, so the Bible uses the word phileo, phileo, right? Which is like where you get the word like, um, if you're familiar with the American city, Philadelphia, right? Okay, the city of brotherly what? If you are American, anybody? Love, or yeah, maybe you just know that trivia, the city of brotherly love. Why is it called that? Because Philadelphia, Philadelphia, it means love, right? But it means brotherly love. That's actually what it means. It's the, but not like only purely between brothers, but it's like familial love or communal love. It's, it's the love that a church should have for one. It's, you know, it's one of the ways of love, like I should have an affinity or an affection for you because we are together as a church, as, a, as the body of Christ, right? So it's this way of like the way you view somebody. It's, it's a feeling. It is a feeling. And the Bible does use, talk about love in a way of feelings, right? Okay, so it's an attitude. It is a feeling. Love involves feelings for another person. It's not coldly disinterested, right? When you read 1 Corinthians 13, nothing about that sounds coldly disinterested, does it? Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy, right? You know, we could go on, okay? So love is an attitude, but it's also an action, Okay, and I think this is where you get into the Bible word like agapeo, agape, love. Which, by the way, the Romans and the Greeks were not fond of. But the Bible latches onto this word and uses it often. It is, it is an action. Because love involves selfless action towards another person. And when it comes to marriage, it involves selfless action towards a spouse. So what love ends up doing is it orients me away from myself and towards another person, right? When I really love somebody, it, it, it takes me out of my own selfishness, out of my own pride. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to be perfect, right? And, and again, everything I'm saying, like Alyssa can attest to the fact that I'm sometimes a very selfish person, all right? And that's the reality. We are fallen human beings <laughs> who fall short of the glory of God all the time. 1 Corinthians 13, that's a great passage for marriage, except the only problem is the only person who really is truly fully lived that way is Jesus, right? We're hopefully getting there further more and more and more as we go on in our lives, but the only person who's fully embodied 1 Corinthians 13 in a real and, and living way is Jesus, okay? So we're all going to fall short. We're all going to fail. But the reality is, is that love begins to take me away from myself and orients me towards another. I want what is best for that person. I will do what is best for that person, even if it hurts me, or even maybe sometimes if it hurts them, if that is what is best for them, right? Think of interventions or things like that, right? I will do what is necessary because I care about that person. I love that person. It is the exact opposite of selfishness. When we begin to think and, and see what, what the Bible talks about love, um, uh, Scott McKnight says, it is a rugged commitment to another person to stay with them for their good, whatever the changing circumstances of that relationship through time. I just want to unpack that for a moment. I'm going to read it again because I read it kind of fast there. It is a rugged commitment. I love that phrase, a rugged commitment to another person to stay with them for their good, whatever the changing circumstances of that relationship through time. Let me tell you a story. I have, I have a, uh, a distant relative. I'm, I'm not actually entirely sure, like, you know, like great, great cousin. I, I don't know, whatever you say. Like, anyway, it's a distant relative who was married and she got cancer. Now, you can tell me whether you think this is love or not. She was very, very sick. It looked like she was going to die. And her husband came into the hospital room and said, I'm sorry, this is too hard. I want a divorce. And he left. The irony is she's still alive and he's dead, but uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> take that for what you think it's worth. Um, but 
That's not love, guys. Love is a rugged commitment to another person that says, even if you are in the most dire circumstances, I will care for you and I will love you. Even if everything in your life health-wise goes completely pear-shaped, I am here. I'm not going anywhere. No matter what, I will be with you. Love, love says that even if you change in a way that I find difficult, that I find hard, I'm with you and I'm not leaving you. Even if you make life decisions that I think are terrible and a disaster, I'm not leaving you. And we've all known people like that. In one of those scenarios, maybe all of them, who have suffered through that, who have been through that, who were committed to that, that is the way the Bible talks about love. That is love. And guys, we sell it so short when we make it purely just an emotion. Love is beautiful in this way, in this rugged commitment. Whatever the changing circumstances of that relationship through time. They lose all their money and file for bankruptcy. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And when we look at marriage as purely a transaction, that, that commitment is gone. Right? Because it becomes like, it becomes like a, a con- you know, again, I say, like contractually, right? It just becomes a, a, a contract that says this for that. So long as you do this, I'll do that, right? That is a very unstable way to have a real, meaningful, deep relationship. Love does not make sense if the goal of a happy and fulfilled life is to prioritize the desires and the needs of ourselves. And so the Bible grounds marriage and love not in a, in a transactional way, but in creation and covenant. The Bible grounds marriage and the love found there in creation and covenant. All right, so we're going to spend our last few minutes together in the sermon time talking about those ideas. All right? Sorry, organize my notes here. We're going to... It seems like a lot. We'll fly through it. So here, let's start with creation. All right, so the Bible begins by grounding the story in creation. So Genesis chapter 2, told you we'd be there. Eventually we got there, right? Genesis chapter 2. All right, and in Genesis chapter 2, here's what we, here's what we read. The Lord God, this is verse 15, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now at this point, Adam's alone. All right? He's alone in the garden. The Lord God... Or sorry. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now, just so you know in the text, this is the only place in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where it is not good. Everything else up to that point, right, God has been making creation, and every time he says what? It was, or it is good. It is good. And so we come to this point in the story where all of a sudden God goes, oh, it is not good for man to be alone. You and I were not made to be isolated beings. We were made to live in community. Now, this is not just marriage. This is not just about marriage. You and I are communal beings. We were not meant to be alone and isolated. We were meant to live in a community of people. Right? And so God looked at Adam and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And as we keep reading, I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one of them. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last... The man exclaimed, This is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. 
She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Here's what I want to say about this passage. Marriage is designed by God to display something about God. In Genesis 1, 27, we read that God created human beings in his image and in his likeness. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, here's what I say. It's grounded in creation. There are two interesting points. First is that you and I are the image, bear the image of God, both male and female, right? That's what it says. Equally bear the image of God. So it's not somehow like, you know, maybe you know, we're used to like hearing things like, you know, patriarchal cultures or something where somehow man carries the image of God better than a woman or something like that. No, 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 no. Equally bear the image of God, okay? So there's an equality there, I think, first that we see. We both, in a way, show something about God. So women who are different than men show a side of God and character of God. I think, and, and even there, tend God's earth in a way that is different typically than, than men do. And men, we share a side of the image of God in a way that is different. Now, can there be some crossover? Of course, of course, okay? But there is a sense in which each one of us as God's image, which by the way, the Greek word there is, is icon, um, or the Hebrew word, I think, if I remember, is tsela, um, which actually means idol, um, which is weird. Um, so it's, it's kind of a cool thought that, that you and I show the world like what God is like, because that's what an idol does, right? You know, it's like the whole idea of an idol is that it's supposed to show what that God is like or something like that. Well, God said what? Do not make idols, right? <laughs> Maybe possibly because he kind of already did, you and I that as we live out our created and intended purpose, we show the world what God is like, his character, his, you know, like who he, what he is like. Okay, so in a way, male and female come together, they bear the image, like we both bear the image of God separately. All right, but then as we read in, in Genesis chapter two, right, that man and woman come together and make one flesh. And so in marriage, there is a, a special, I think a unique way in which men and women together bear the image of God. And I think this is what Paul then is, is getting at in Ephesians chapter 5. All right, so we're going to take a little digression for a moment, but I think, I think, there's, I think there's a payoff. So there is a, a biblical scholar by the name of Ari Lam. My Hebrew is, is pretty much non-existent, okay? So just understand that, like, this is, this is coming from Ari Lam, but I did do a word study, and, and this, this, this checks out, okay? So what he says checks out. What he says is that when you read uh, in the Bible that it came from Adam's rib, right? Now, we're not going to get into the science of all of this, okay? Like, but just when it says it came from the rib, that word underneath it is a word zella, okay? And it, it's a word zella, and it means the side, okay? It can mean rib. It can mean rib, okay? And that's why our Bibles tend to say rib, it can mean that. However, if we're going to use the word rib here, it's the only place in the Bible that, that they use this Hebrew word for the rib, okay? What it actually means is half of something. The way it's used in the Bible is architecturally, okay? Everywhere else in the Bible, and you can look this up, everywhere else in the Bible that uses this word, it's used architecturally. So the next place that we find it is when the Ark of the Covenant is being built, right? Okay, so we think about, you know, um, if you know anything, uh, so in, in like say Exodus, like the people, they leave Egypt, they're, they're instructed to build a, a tent called a tabernacle, and inside of that they were to build a, um, uh, what's called the Ark of the Covenant, and it would be the place where God's presence dwelt in a special and unique way. And as they're building that, the instructions say, you know, you are to put like two rings on one side, on one cella, of the Ark of the Covenant, and two rings on the other cella of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a half. And what Ari Lam says here is that what it's conveying to us is that actually God came down and he split Adam in half <laughs> and said, man and woman. Not just that he took a rib and formed a, a, a person out of it, but that actually they are two 
halves that complement each other and make a whole. And he says, this is why, two verses later, we read, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. That it's two halves that come together and make a whole, an image God in a unique and special way. All right? So we took a little digression there, but I think, I think it's a helpful one. At least to me, it was as I was thinking about marriage. One being, one flesh, longing to be united. All right? And so that's, I think, we could say a lot more about the grounding of marriage and creation, but we'll just stop there because we want to get done and eat food here at some point. Right? So the next thing we're going to talk about is the idea of contract and versus covenant. And so when we think about love, true love, then, that's grounded in creation and built in covenant is able to withstand the roller coaster of emotion because of covenant, through the bounds of covenant. What is one? Yeah. There we go. Was that like up there before? Like, was that still up there? Did I just not click it right? Okay, so I wasn't completely off. All right. This is the, the worst theme ever. I need to give this to somebody and just give up. Um, <laughs> so true love withstands the roller coaster of emotion through the bounds of covenant. So let's talk for a moment about covenant and contract. Okay? And this is where, again, I think this is a really, really helpful, really important distinction between the way we tend to see marriage versus the way that the Bible speaks about marriage. So marriage is a covenant. What is a covenant and why does this matter? Because that's a word we don't use. When was the last time you used the word covenant? Unless you were talking about a church in the city. Uh, those of you in Docus, I guess you'd be talking about Covenant Christian Fellowship, so maybe you did say covenant. Uh, right, but, but when was the last time, honestly, like you really used that word on a regular basis? Like, we don't. We don't, right? We don't. Like, I think that's the answer. I can't think, unless I'm like preaching on covenant, or again, I'm talking about, you know, one of our, one of our brothers and sisters, you know, a church of brothers and sisters in Christ in the city, or something like, I don't use that word. So we need to understand what covenant means. The word in, in Hebrew is berit. The word in Greek is diatheke. And, and it's, a, it's, it's like, a, like an agreement between two or more parties, but it is more than just an agreement, okay? And that's, I think, important, right? A contract is just an agreement, right? That says, like, hey, you know, you give me this, I'll give you that, and whatever. Like, we're happy out. You know, like, on, like I, I sell something on, on adverts or whatever. Like, I agree to meet somebody, right? We kind of, we don't write necessarily a contract, but there's an agreement there that says, like, hey, you do this, I'll do that, I'll pay you this, right? Um, so that's, that's contract. But a covenant is different. Covenants have conditions and stipulations, um, which contracts can have as well, right? So, so both a covenant and a contract can have stipulations that say, like, do you know what, if, if you don't, provide this service, then you forfeit your payment or whatever. But covenants tend to have more extreme, you know, when you're reading in the Bible, they have more extreme consequences, like, you know, may I die like this animal, um, you know, like things like that, um, if I don't hold up my end of the deal. Um, but but here's, the, here's the thing, where it really becomes different, is covenant is, is more than an agreement, covenant is a partnership. Okay, so, so they had contracts and agreements in the ancient world, but then they had covenants. And that is a much more profound, much more powerful, you can't walk back on it. Like it is a binding thing that says like, when I say, I, when I enter into that covenant, it's not something I just go, you know, I can say, well, you know what, maybe not. I'm just going to back away from that. Whereas a contract, maybe you can more or, or things like that. It is, it is a binding up. It is viewed as like a binding up of somebody with somebody else. Okay. So maybe this will be, be helpful. Um, it's, it's much more deeply entwined than an agreement. It's tangling yourself up with somebody else. <laughs> that's, that's a covenant, right? And so, I mean, even there, that's helpful when we come to Jesus, which we, you know, we'll definitely be talking about Jesus here in a few minutes, right? But, right, Jesus came and to bring a new covenant, right? Jesus came and he bound himself up with humanity, right? This is the idea of, of covenant, 
Contracts are limited by the terms of the exchange of property. This is yours, that is mine. Whereas covenants involve an exchange of life. I am yours, you are mine. This is even in like, you know, I make a covenant with you or something like that. There is that binding that says like, I am yours, you are mine. Like it's, it's very serious, okay? Contracts are based on profit and self-interest while covenants call for self-giving loyalty and sacrificial love, all right? Contracts are temporary while covenant bonds are permanent. And I think this is, these are important distinctions when it comes to marriage because, again, like I said, I think we tend to view marriage in our Western culture more contractually than covenantally, right? So, it is a binding of myself to an, another person. It is an intertwining of fortunes that says, whatever happens to you, happens to me, right? I'm like, that's, that's a covenant, okay? I think about like in, in the story of Abraham, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, like there is a binding that says, I will make you a great nation. I'm not just saying that contractually. I'm saying, irregardless, I am going to make you, an, uh, I'm going to make you a great nation. He didn't say, like, and so you typically find that, that we're, and this is where I think it's important when we come to our faith, that God makes covenants with us, is that God says, I am committed to you. <laughs> even when you fail, even when you screw up, I am committed to you. Okay, this is covenant. So we see that this idea that, that the Bible grounds marriage in creation and makes marriage a covenant, not a transaction. All right? And so as I said before, love is not God. God is love. And he wants us to love and to be loved. So here's where we start to put it all together. Okay? Marriage, I think, is at its best and most fulfilling when lived within the Trinity of God, husband and wife. Okay? If you want to go it alone, it will not be as good. But what we see when we ground marriage and creation is that God says it is not good for man to be alone. And he creates Eve. And what do Adam and Eve do? They walk in the garden with who? God. There is, you want to draw a triangle, <laughs> there is God at the top, and then there is man and wife. And the two of, and they all, in relational, in relationship with one another, enjoy one another, right? I enjoy my wife more because I'm enjoying God. She helps me to enjoy God more as she pushes me to be more like Jesus. And I think that, that the converse is true, that the same is true, that I push her to be more like Jesus and to know God more. And as she knows God more, she's a better wife. You know, it's one of those where, again, it's a relational trinity between the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and then man and wife, like husband and wife. Marriage is at its best and most fulfilled when it's lived this way. Marriage is at its best when it's nowhere near a close second, though. And I think this is important. I think sometimes we tend, to, you know, even as Christians, to say, well, God first, and then, you know, then my family, whatever. And it, and it almost becomes like family's a close second. Family should never be a close second. I know like, that may cause, you know, family should be a very distant second. It's fine for family to be second, I think, but it should be a distant second because nothing should even come close to God. That when we view marriage in the light of eternity, we begin to see the perspective that like our relationships here on earth are important, but our relationship to God sets the tone for all other relationships and that God should come first by like a ton. <laughs> and that actually that's the way other relationships work and function best. That's the place where other relationships flourish and thrive is that when God is like way above and there is no close second. Okay? And I think that's, that's important. That we should keep our ideas of marriage within the light of eternity. And so here's the thing. I want you guys to, to just hear my heart. Like, I know, like, what we just did there was, like, a lot of, like, you know, Genesis chapter 2, 
um, you know, and like all this kind of stuff, right? Okay, I understand. Like it's not always the most exciting. But here's where I bring it up. Because for those of you who are married, for those of you who are not married, my desire for you is if like if you desire to get married or you are married, whatever, I want you to have a happy marriage. I want you guys to enjoy the blessings of God that come when marriage is set up in a way that is biblical and godly. You guys, like, I was an, I was an idiot when, we, when Alyssa and I first got married. I still am, but, like, I was a much bigger idiot. <laughs> like, I didn't know what it meant to be married. I didn't know what it really, I mean, I had a, I grew up in a, within, like, a family that had a healthy marriage. My parents have a healthy marriage and all of that, so I saw that. But I didn't know a lot of these things. I didn't understand a lot of these things. And I made a lot of really stupid mistakes. But what I can tell you now is like, I've got a great marriage. I do. And I don't say that boastfully. I just say it as like a reality. Like I enjoy so much being married to that woman in the back. Like it is the most incredible blessing. And I'm not saying this either because Valentine's Day is coming up, right? Okay. Quite honestly, you guys, I can't, like, it is amazing. I love how she pushes me to be like Jesus. I love the person that she is, like, pushing me to become. And I love the person that I see her becoming over 15 years of marriage. And I love the way that the two of us can come together and worship God together. And I want that for you. I want you to, at the very least, the baseline to have a marriage as happy as mine. That's what I desire for you guys. And I think it's there and it's on offer. When we submit our lives to Jesus, when we align ourselves with him, and we live out the biblical vision of marriage, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's an incredible blessing. And I, and I do, like, again, I say this in all honesty. It is an incredible blessing to follow Jesus with Alyssa. But here's the thing, guys. We live, in a, we live in, a, in, a, in a place where, you know, the pool of people that feel that way, maybe, is pretty small. <laughs> I mean, that's just the reality. And so I just want to speak to you guys who aren't married for a moment. And I want to say this. Do not settle. Do not settle. I know the temptation will be there. I know you will want to. Don't. Don't settle. There is a marriage that you can have that is so unbelievably life-giving. Do not settle for less. Interfaith marriage is setting yourself up for disappointment and failure. It doesn't mean, it doesn't guarantee failure, okay? Hear me out. It doesn't guarantee failure. It doesn't mean that you will, you know, assuredly have a miserable marriage and a miserable life, okay? I'm not saying that. But all the statistics... That are, that are out there, and you can look them up, would bear this reality that interfaith marriages are difficult. The interfaith marriages are the most likely to end in divorce. Because what you share at your, what you have at your deepest core is not shared by the other person. Who you are at your most basic level, how, where you find your identity is not the same. You are not pulling in the same direction. Have any of you guys ever played video games with a child? What happens? Right? You know what you're doing. You know how to go in the right direction. And they're like, you know, like in the corner, in the wall, you know, just running into the wall or whatever, right? Because they don't have a clue. They're going in a completely opposite direction. And no matter what you tell them, they just keep going. They can't figure it out. Guys, that is what an interfaith marriage is like. It's like playing video games with a kid. Because you are on one page, you are going in this direction, and they're like running against the wall. And they probably see the same for you. <laughs> they want to go in a certain direction, and they look at you like you're the kid playing the video game, just bouncing off the wall there, you know, like, or, or whatever, like not unable to figure it out. Guys, that is the problem. It's like tug of war instead of like pulling a, a plow. <laughs> and I wasn't going to use that metaphor because it just makes marriage sound like not much fun to pull a plow. Um, <laughs> but do you understand what I'm saying? All right, so that's why I wanted to speak to you for a moment. There is a prohibition in the Old Testament. Okay, maybe, how many of you guys are reading the Bible in a year? I think Luke, like his community group is doing that. Some of you guys maybe are. You're going to come into these passages that sound really weird, like in Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4, that says, you must not intermarry with them. <laughs> like, it's talking racially. Don't intermarry with those people. Now, 
There have been people throughout history that have used those passages to say, well, people shouldn't marry outside their race. That is not what, that's a, what, it, what it means at all. And, it's, and if you read the Bible, you'll understand that. Okay? That's not what it's saying. The reason there was a prohibition about not for Israelites to not marry non-Israelites is because they worship different gods. Right? Because <laughs> we can read about Rahab. She wasn't an Israelite, and she ended up being in Jesus' lineage. Right? Why? Because she followed God, and that changes everything. Right? That's what it's primarily about. Because if we read Deuteronomy 7, uh, we continue on. It says, You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters. For they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. That's the issue. The Bible is warning you, saying, Don't do this because it will lead you astray. But like I said, Rahab and also Ruth are just but two examples of, interfaith, of like interracial marriage. That is beautiful and good because they both have at their core God, following God, right? And both those women end up in Jesus' lineage, right? King David, right? Ruth is like his, his grandma. <laughs> Pretty cool, right? Okay. Marriage works best when two people share the same deepest convictions, because as Lisa Chan says, and, and a really, again, a good book on marriage. Um, I could recommend a couple of books on marriage if you want that later um, that I think are really helpful. Um, but just to say, she says, marriage is one of the most humbling, sanctifying journeys you will ever be a part of. It forces us to wrestle with our selfishness and pride, 100% true, but it also gives us a platform to display love and commitment, also very true. And so... Just to kind of close, close this here, is to come back and say this, marriage is a partnership. We see it in Genesis chapter 2, but we see it in Ephesians chapter 5. I told you we'd get there, and we are nearly, we are nearly there, Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 21, it says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. Here's the thing. Marriage is a partnership. We see it in Genesis chapter 2. Paul reiterates it in Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, so he says, if we just read, for wives this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, this can be taken in some really unhealthy directions. It can be, you know, and I've, I've seen this play out in some churches where it's almost nearly abusive marriages. Whatever the husband says, that's it, right? This can be taken in very unhealthy ways. But what you have to see is actually 21 and 22 are connected to each other. They're like grammatically connected to each other in Greek. So in verse 22, it actually doesn't say, sorry, I'm not going to get into the grammatical of it. We can talk about it later, just for the sake of time. Just understand, 21 and 22 are grammatically connected. So whatever verse 21 means, it means the same thing in verse 22. This is also the word that's used when it talks about Jesus and the Father, <laughs> that Jesus submitted to the Father. Okay, so is that abusive? No. So does that mean husbands then have a right to do whatever they want? No. Right? Because, again, he's going to come to Jesus with this. What you find is that whatever it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, it also means that a husband and wife submit to each other in different ways. Right? If I'm going to, submit, if I'm going to love Jesus like Christ loved the church, do you think for a moment there's going to be some submitting of my will and what I want in order to serve Alyssa and to love her. Yes, of course. There is going to be a giving up of myself, a submitting myself to her in a way that says, I love her so much and want what is best for her that I will do what it takes to love her the way she should be loved, that I will sacrifice, that I will give because I'm committed to her. There's a sense in which I'm submitting myself to her. My desires, my longings, all that I am submitting and committing to living in real relationship with her. 
And there is a way in which then she submits to me as, as you know, again, we could, we could talk about created order, all of those things. But just to say, marriage is a partnership of mutual submission. With differing roles, sure. Nonetheless, the husband and wife will each submit to and serve one another. And we could get into how revolutionary this was when it was written, how it completely upended household codes and all of that kind of thing, but you probably don't want to hear about it. It's interesting. I'll tell you about it later if you want. But here's the thing. From a practical perspective, marriage is a partnership. And if you want to have, like, if you're like somebody who goes, you know what? I want to start living, like, aligning my marriage more with Jesus. I want to have that kind of marriage. Just here's some things, right? Here's some things that, that to me, I just think are really important. I was going to say, like, the first three are read, pray, and grow. But I was going to say eat, pray, love. But anyway, that's, um, my mind works in weird ways. Read the Bible together. Read the Bible together. That's a great way to, to get to know Jesus together. Alyssa and I have done that in the past. We're supposed to be doing it right now, but neither one of us have been very good at it. Um, but like reading the Bible together and talking about it. Right? Like being able to share and say, hey, you know what we read this morning? I had this thought. And then she goes, oh yeah, I had, I had a similar thought. Or you know what? My mind went in this direction as I read it. Like that's that's. That's gold right there, right? Read the Bible together. Pray together. Pray together. Don't just pray on your own. Pray together. Grow together, right? Don't stay stagnant. Push each other to be more like Jesus. Grow in the faith together. Love together. Not just each other, but love God together and love other people together, which leads then to serving together. Do things together to serve other people. Share together. And we could get in more into that, but suffice it to say, I think when the Bible says one flesh, it means what's yours is mine and what's mine is yours. It is a real coming together that says we share all things. I don't just like keep this stuff like this is my thing, you have your thing, and we just, you know. Sure, it's not saying you can't have hobbies that, you know, the other spouse is uninterested in, but, but for the, you know what I mean? Like when it comes to like finances or whatever, I think, I think it's important sharing together, be in one flesh, and build together. Build a life together. Build a legacy together. Acts chapter 18, Aquila and Priscilla, two people married to each other, you know, a husband and wife, who did immense stuff for the kingdom. They were just leather workers, tent, tent makers, that worked with Paul. Like, Paul met them in, in Corinth, making tents. They weren't standing up, preaching on a Sunday, or whatever. Like, they weren't, like, they're just people doing their job, following Jesus together, loving Jesus together. And this guy Apollos comes along in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesus. Long story, they end up traveling to Ephesus. But like, and he comes along and they disciple him together. And this guy ends up being a huge player in planting churches all over the world. Apollos is a legend. <laughs> like, anyway, right? But Aquila and Priscilla are there in the background, husband and wife. Praying together, loving together, serving together, sharing together, building together a legacy. So, as I hinted at earlier, marriage is an example of Christ's love for the church. We read that in Ephesians chapter 5. But I think we need to dwell on that love just for a moment. Christ's love for his church. Because it starts there in understanding that all of these things that we talk about, like covenantal love, the way that we, you know, the way that we serve, and, and all, who exemplifies that best? Like, I can't hold a candle to Jesus. <laughs> like, Jesus came and he intertwined his life in with you and me. He became human. He entered into the mess of humanity, right? And we know it's a mess, right? We know it's a mess. And yet, Jesus was willing to enter into that to intertwine his life and ours. God was willing to enter into the mess in order to covenant with us, to love us, to serve us. The Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. And ultimately, Jesus gave his life for you and for me. Jesus is the truest and most faithful covenant partner. And as we come to communion, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate this every Sunday. Right, we had a topical sermon about marriage, but at the end of the day, everything we do is grounded 
in the person and work of Jesus. And we come together every week, and we do communion every single week because it is important that we remember, that we taste, and we, we see that the Lord is good, that we remember how Jesus came and covenanted with us. He covenanted with us all the way into death. Like, he died from rebellious human beings who crucified him so that you and I may live. And he now lives so that you and I may have victory over sin and over death. And actually, after we finish this series, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about up until Easter. And I'm super pumped for it. But that's neither here nor there at the moment. Right? And so we celebrate communion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to...